uh, over the summer. Oh, Mike, you're here. You're the star of the sermon, so we needed you to come. Appreciate that. Over the summer, I was having uh, breakfast with Mike Gibson. Uh, Mike and Carrie are uh, back there, and as you know, they have a ministry in Haiti, uh, a huge ministry. Like they, What they've done there is, is incredible stuff. Um, they work with a boys' home. They also work with an orphanage, uh, street children. Um, they partner with uh, Pastor Pierre, who's our friend at this church, who, um, who undergoes incredible, incredible pressure, incredible difficulty, and does all of it in faith and in peace. Um, truly, I, I would say... Uh, sort of an inspiration to us, teaching us what sainthood maybe looks like. So Mike and I were talking, and we, Mike was, he was kind of complaining a little bit. Mike was whining. He's like, he's like, Pierre just doesn't get it, you know? Pierre, you know, I, I say, I say, Pierre, we have to be able to pay the rent, or the orphanage is going to close, and the rent's due in two days. So what's the plan? And Pierre, you know, he's, he's naive, and he says, well, you know, the Lord will provide. He always has before. And we're going to keep praying, and and God's going to do what God's going to do. And Mike's like, yeah, great. That's that's a good plan. I can see how that's really going to work out. See, Mike, uh, if you don't know, Mike's an executive at a very large bank. I think it's like uh, Chase or I don't know something really important. Mike's a big deal, and uh, he's like a he's a vice president of operations or something like really really important guy. So he, uh, he has a, a really good insight into how the world works. And the world does not work like, oh, well, you know, we're just going to keep praying and, and things are... No, you've got to get on the horn and you've got to make this thing happen. So Mike was sort of venting to me a little bit. And what the, the point of his venting was, was sort of to get to this point where he's like, look, Tom, I get it. I know what the mission is. God has put this on, you know, our family's heart. Mike, Carrie, the kids, our thing is Haiti. Our mission is to these kids to rescue them. God, God has, has ordained us for this work. This is our mission in the world. But here's the problem. The problem is, is that as we go along in our mission, stuff comes up, gets in the way, obstacles, problems. How do we get through? How do we make it in the midst of our mission when, when the enemy, in whatever form the enemy shows up and tries to train wreck what we're doing, how do we make it through? What's the right way to go about that? Well, I mean, of course, Mike looks up to me as you know, a really serious spiritual advisor in his life, someone that he can really expect to get great advice from. And, and so I naturally, I said, I said this. I said, Mike, and this is the title of our, 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 our message today, Mike, our victory has to come from God, on God's terms, in God's time. I'm just kidding. I didn't say that. I, I had no idea what to say. I was like, mm, I, I don't know. I mean, Pastor Pierce seems pretty right on about the whole praying thing, but I also understand you've got to get on the phone. I, I really don't know what to say, Mike. But if I, could re, uh, if I could go back in time, four months ago, three months ago, whenever it was, I would say, Mike... In order to have victory in this situation, every time something comes up, in order to have victory, your victory, whatever it looks like, has to come from God. It has to be on God's terms. It has to be in God's time. If the ushers have passed out the note sheet, let's look at the next text we are reading in the Gospel of Luke. Please stand. This is Luke 4, 1 to 13. 
Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, the Jordan River, uh, east of, eastern part of Israel, and was led by, spirit, by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted by 40 days by the, by the devil. In those days he ate nothing, and afterwards, when they had ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you're the Son of God, because chances are you're not, command this stone to become bread. But Jesus answered him, saying, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in one moment of time. And the devil said to him, All this authority, this power, I will give you, and the glory that goes with it. For this has been given to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship, me, uh, if you will worship before me, all, all, will be yours. And Jesus answered and said to him, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Then he brought him to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are, if you are the Son of God, chances are you're not, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you to keep you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It has been said, You shall not tempt or test the Lord your God. Now when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until a more opportune time. You may be seated. A fascinating text. This is the first time the devil shows up on the scene in the Gospel of Luke. It, moreover, it's, the, uh, it's only one of two times that, that Satan sort of steps out from behind the back of, of what's going on in the story to, to sit there and to confront and to make things happen. For the most part, Satan's kind of in the background. In fact, Jesus will talk about him doing things and this is how you know that you're uh, from Satan or not. But Satan himself doesn't really show up that often. He's, he's always kind of lurking in the background. But just in this text, in Luke 4, and then again in Luke 22, Satan pops out and does some stuff. An interesting text. What does it bring to mind? What, where, what, is, what is Jesus doing? He's, he's at the Jordan River, and you'll remember that the Israelites crossed the Jordan to enter into the Promised Land after they've wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus wanders in the wilderness for 40 days, facing testing and temptation. Interesting, every time Jesus responds to the devil's uh, temptations or his tests, Jesus always does so from the book of Deuteronomy, chapters 6 to 8. If you know the book of Deuteronomy, it takes place, it's, it's kind of an interesting book, it's an interesting way the story is told. Deuteronomy 6 to 8, uh, at the beginning of the book, Moses is about to end his ministry. The Israelites are standing on, the, on the, the banks of the Jordan River, and they're about to enter the promised land. And so Moses stands up, and he wants to give them a lesson. This is what you should have learned after this 40 years of wandering and failing and being terrible. This is what you should have taken away from that. And then over the course of Deuteronomy, he tells them their story of wandering in the, in the wilderness. He says, you did this, you did this, you did that, you did this. And every single time you failed God. Every single time God was there supporting you, loving you, taking care of you, and you found some way to ignore him, to 
go to another God, to trust in something else. In fact, the, the words that Jesus uses in uh, each of his responses to the devil respond to uh, three basic types of temptations or tests the Israelites faced. Um, in uh, Deuteronomy 8.3, uh, uh, Moses is reminding the Israelites that they were fed by manna. And he says, but the, the Lord God let you be hungry because he wanted you to recognize that you don't need to trust in food. That's not where hope comes from. It's not food and shelter and money and all that. No, no, it comes from me. That's why I let that happen. You're not supposed to live by bread alone. Uh, in chapter 6, 4 to 15, uh, the Lord, um, Moses uh, explains that the Lord demands worship of the Lord only, service only to him. Because in the, in the desert, the Israelites have been serving everything but God. When Moses comes with the Ten Commandments, what do they do? They run away, to, they make a golden calf, and they try to serve that. They're looking for anybody but the Lord God to bail them out. Another interesting one, this is what Jesus responds to the third temptation. It says uh, in Deuteronomy 16, 6.16, Do not tempt the Lord your God as you did at Massa. We'll look at that again. It's, a, it's, it's like a test. Like, like the Israelites were like, prove it, God. As if God hadn't done that already. Well, I want to suggest to you that all of these things, the wilderness, the 40 days in the, in, in the wilderness, the, the constantly going back to the book of Deuteronomy, what Jesus is doing is he's placing himself as Israel. He's saying, I'm Israel. In fact, in your note sheets, we talk about Jesus' identity and his mission. The first uh, blanks in your note sheet, Jesus' mission is to be Israel for Israel. See, Israel was on the banks of the Jordan, and they looked back at all the terrible things that they'd done, and they didn't learn a thing. As soon as they go into the land, they make the same mistakes over and over and over. And, and how can God fulfill his purpose through Israel if Israel won't be Israel the way Israel's supposed to be? And the story of Israel in the Old Testament is over and over and over, God calling them back saying, this is what I want you to be. And the people never quite getting it. After Israel crossed the Jordan, she repeats all the mistakes she'd made in the wilderness. Israel doesn't learn. God's solution is not to cast off his people, but to become one of them and do for them what they cannot do by themselves. Which is a very bizarre plan, if you think about it. Nevertheless, that's what God, because God must be faithful to Israel, he chooses to become a part of Israel and do for Israel what Israel could not do on her own. And this little text, this portion of scripture, is Jesus symbolically doing everything Israel could not Now, what's the devil doing? Well, the devil's doing the same thing he's always been doing. He's looked at Israel and he's like, man, I sure know how to get those guys. Anytime Israel thinks they know uh, what they're doing, well, you know, we'll make them hungry a little bit. We'll take away the possibility of shelter or provision. And, and then they'll run to something else. Then they'll, they'll run to someone other than God. Or perhaps Israel is thinking that what they need to do is, is force everybody around them to, to worship God. Well, I'll tempt them with power. What Israel needs is strength. And, and I'll be the one to give it to them. 
I'll be the one to, to let them have what they need, power. Another t- other times, Israel's not sure that God's really on their side. Israel's not sure about God's continuing commitment. Well, I'll make them second guess. I'll make them get up in God's face and be like, oh, we don't trust you. We don't know enough to know that you're going to be on our side. And every time the devil does that, he, he takes Israel from on the, pl- on the path and just subverts them a little bit. I want you to notice that this is not like, he's not making Israel do like these huge left turns. I mean, maybe a little bit. But for the most part, he's just corrupting basic, good, normal things. Israel needs to eat in the desert, in the wilderness. Israel needs to be able to win battles. They need to have power if they're going to take the land. Israel needs to know that God's on their side. But the devil's, the devil's uh, tools, so the way that he works with them is he takes these very good, very natural instincts, and he just corrupts them a little bit. Just, just sows that seed of, of lack of faith, of lack of commitment, and gets them to go just off to the side, just a little bit. And then that seed of corruption festers and festers and festers and festers and grows into something that, well, I like the term train wreck. Train wrecks Israel. It grows and grows and grows until their mistakes are too many to count, so they're so far off the track that they are no longer able to be what God wanted them to be in the world. And we're going to see that as we look at each one of these temptations. Let's look at the first. Wait. All Israel has to do, all Jesus has to do, is say, no, my victory in this mission It has to come from God. It has to be on God's terms. And it has to be in God's time. Those are the three ways that Israel has been kept off the path. Those are the three ways that Jesus will stay on the path. Uh, Verse 2. Being tempted for 40 days by the devil, and in those days he ate nothing. And afterward, when they had ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you're the Son of God, Command this stone to become bread. Okay, if you're, if you're following Luke's narrative, you know that last chapter, just a few days ago, Jesus was baptized. And when, during his baptism, like a voice from heaven and a dove came down and said, This is my son. I'm well pleased. There should be no question that Jesus is God's son. The thing is, though, same thing happened to Israel. In Exodus, I think uh, Exodus 17, um, God says, Israel, you're my firstborn son. Because you're my son, you reflect my character and you know that I'll take care of you. And yet Israel forgets this. Will Jesus forget this? Well, the easiest way to cause a problem in a relationship is to be hungry. Uh, this, have I told this story? This is a true story. I, um, Aaron and I had been married for about four months, and a friend of mine from Fuller was getting married, and his soon-to-be father-in-law gathered some wise people to give him counsel before he was married. And he said, if you can give just one piece of advice, you know, to a, a, a newlywed, you know, what, what is it? You know, practical advice to make sure the marriage works. And I, um, I, I don't know, I said something really arrogant, like, you just have to love more than you can possibly have ever loved before. It's something stupid. It didn't make any sense. And uh, then my friend also said something silly. And then we got to this guy who was uh, in his 50s. And he said, 
never have an argument on an empty stomach. And I, my head perked up and I was like, hmm, that does make sense. Uh, I would say that 92% of the arguments that Aaron and I have come from an empty stomach. You've been there because you're tired and you're upset and you're, and you're, and you're like, and so suddenly what is probably innocuous, you assume that they're doing it to you. Like, like she really wants to hurt me right now. And, and as soon as, and there's that, that commercial where as soon as you take a bite from the Snickers bar, then it's like, oh, okay, all right, we can deal. Well, that's a very, it's a very real, very human phenomenon. And God uses that to test Israel in, in the desert. He gets them hungry to see if they can learn that, that their, their power, their strength doesn't come from food. Uh, instead, uh, it comes from God. Well, that doesn't happen. Israel, in fact, as soon as Israel gets their manna, they try to squirrel it away. When they go into the, into the lands, they, they get fat and rich off the land. They think that's going to save them. The devil says, hey, you know, you're the son of God, right? Okay, hold on. There it is. Uh, this stone right here, make it turn it into bread. Come on, this is easy. The problem with the idea of Jesus commanding the stone turning into bread is not that, what, Jesus can't do it. It's not that Jesus doesn't need to eat. It's that Jesus is Israel. And the way Israel has to have victory in their mission is that their victory, in this case their bread, it has to come from God. Their victory, uh, in this case eating bread, it, it has to be on God's terms. God's the one who has to show them how this bread is going to come. If they're going to have victory in their mission, it has to be in God's time. They have to wait until God is ready to feed them. The devil says, short circuit that. Do it yourself. Take care of it. And then you'll be fine. It doesn't need to come from God. It can come from you. It doesn't need to be on God's terms. Set up your own terms for how you're going to fix this problem. Get through. Why are you waiting for him? He hasn't shown up yet. He's probably not going to. So get it done. But Jesus answered him saying, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, All this I will give you, and the glory that goes with it. For this has been given over to me, presumably by God, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you'll worship before me, all is yours. Um, I got my hair cut yesterday, and... and um, I was trying to get Steb's assistant to come to church today, but she found out I was going to talk about Lord of the Rings a little bit, and so she said, nope, not this time. So, I'm sorry, it has to happen. There's, a, uh, there's an, an academic philosopher who, uh, she, she looks at the ring of power in Lord of the Rings. You know the ring of power, right? Uh, Bilbo or Frodo, Frodo's got the ring, and Gandalf's like, we've got to destroy that, and they go and they have a council, what are we going to do with this ring? And they decide they're going to throw it in a big mountain and they're going to melt it. Right? They're going to melt this ring instead of using it. Well, the idea is the ring of power. The ring of power, if you have it, and you're wearing it, and you're using it, you're invincible. Nobody can stop you. You can do whatever you like with this ring. It gives you influence and power over everybody else. Nobody 
can get in your way if you've got the ring. There's a cost. Power corrupts. It twists your mind just a little bit, a little bit at a time. And suddenly you become so enamored with the ring itself that you forget why you had it in the first place. The Boromir trap. The, the council, they're sitting around and they're deciding what to do with this ring. And Boromir, a good man, a man who's been defending his lands against the powers of darkness for so long he can't remember any other way. He says, it is a gift. The ring is a gift. Give it to me. I will wear it. I will draw my sword and I will lead our armies to victory. I will destroy the dark lord with the power of the ring. That's a good motivation. When, when the armies of darkness are arrayed against you and then you have this tool, this tool that gives you the power to destroy them, why wouldn't you? It's because the ring of power corrupts and twists you. And yes, you may put Sauron, the Dark Lord, to the sword, but you will wake up one day and realize that you have become him. See, I think when uh, the devil shows Jesus all the nations of the earth, I don't think that he shows him glittering thrones. I mean, maybe he does. I think that he shows them him, I think he shows them people suffering unjustly. I think he shows him, uh, you know, the killing fields of Cambodia. I think he shows them the oven, uh, him the ovens in, in the Shoah, the Holocaust. I think the devil shows Jesus the darkness of this world and says, just worship me and you can fix it. Give allegiance to me, and I will let you bring the hammer down on evil. I will let you stop the madness by the power of your fist. You will set the nations in line. A great plan. Something I think that if we're honest with ourselves, we all would like to see. Justice done. The world turned upside down, the hungry fed, the captive set free. In fact, these are the very things that Jesus will proclaim when he announces his ministry at the temple. He says, I am going to do these things. The problem here then isn't that Jesus shouldn't be the Lord of all nations. We already know in Luke 1 we're told Jesus will be the Lord of all nations. This is a good thing. The problem is the shortcut. Instead of getting this lordship from God... Instead of doing it on God's terms, which I remind you will be a cross. Instead of doing it in God's time, which as we've seen, it's been 2,000 years and still the Lord does not reign. Instead of doing it that way, the devil says, let's do it my way. It is a gift. Incidentally, Israel took this gift, right? When Israel enters the land, um, they, out of compassion, uh, don't slaughter all of the people that are living in the land. The Lord tells them that they must. They refuse to do so. They even make alliances with some of them. And we see what happens over time. This, this generous, compassionate move that Israel makes sows the seeds of corruption, of idolatry, 
such that by the time uh, the kings come around and by the time the later kings, Israel is rife with, um, what, idolatry and uh, we're, we think maybe child sacrifice, the, 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 the evil things that came from the surrounding nations, all because of a little bit too much compassion. All because they don't say it's going to be on God's terms. We're going to do it on our terms. We don't like God's timing. Let's do it in our time. And Jesus answered and said to him, Get behind me, Satan. It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. What Jesus is saying is, We're going to do it God's way. What Jesus is saying is, Instead of bringing the hammer down, I'm going to go to the cross. I'm not going to accept your power. I'm going to embrace God's power. Then he brought him to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, devil's getting really tricky now. Now he's using scripture against Jesus. For it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. All true, right? I mean, if Jesus, let's just say that, you know, Jesus sort of got knocked off the temple. I don't think God's going to let his plan of redemption get train wrecked just because Jesus fell. I think he's probably going to send some angels and bail him out. The devil's not, he's not, he's telling the truth. It's a corrupted truth, but it's the truth. And Jesus answered and said to him, It has been said, You shall not tempt or test the Lord your God. It's an interesting reference. He, he's referring to um, a place in Deuteronomy where Moses is telling Israel, he's like, this is what you should have learned from all of your mistakes in the desert. He says, you shall not tempt the Lord your God as you did at Massah. It refers to this really obscure story in Massah. It's um, a story in Exodus where the Israelites begin thinking, gosh, do you think God's really on our side? Do you think he's really going to go through it for us? I'm just not sure. What we need to do is we need to put God to the test. We need to, make, we need to get some certainty, some surety that he really is for us. And they're thirsty at the time, and so they say, give us water. And Moses says, God, I don't know what to do with these people. And God says, I don't either, but let's give them some water. So Moses comes and makes a, a rock in Horeb give water to the people. And then God says, call this place Massah which means testing or proving to remind the Israelites how they failed. Now, Jesus is not being tempted by water, but he is being tempted to hedge his bets. If he's really the son of God, he needs to know it, and the way to know it is to make sure that the sort of promises that God gives do in fact apply to him. Well, Jesus doesn't buy into it because Jesus understands that his assurance, his, his surety, his certainty doesn't come from testing God. It comes from God, yes, but it comes on God's terms. 
When God sees fit to assure Jesus that he is the son and that he will do well, then God will do it in God's way. And God will do it when God chooses to do it, not because Jesus forces his hand. Jesus understands that his deliverance, his rescue, his certainty must come from God, on God's terms, in God's time. Uh, on your note sheets, I missed some spots. I was like, I was like on a roll. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, Jesus' responses to Satan come from Deuteronomy 6 to 8. And again, that's important because it sets us in mind of Jesus being Israel for Israel, not failing the way Israel failed. And then Satan's goal is to cause Jesus to fail in the same ways that Israel failed, offering provision, power, and certainty about deliverance. We saw that in each one of the um, the temptations. That's provision, power, and certainty about deliverance. Well, theological aside, uh, my wife, uh, as I was pre- preparing the sermon, my wife um, just really threw me off on a tangent, and the sermon almost didn't get written because of, because of her. Um, so, yeah. She, she, she goes, well, Tom, you know, why, why does the Spirit do this to Jesus? I was like, I, I don't know. It seemed like a good idea. I'm not sure. Uh, and you've got to think about it. Look at the very beginning of the text. Um, you know, Jesus being filled with the Spirit, returned from the Jordan where he was baptized, and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Very strange thing for the Spirit to do. The Spirit's, uh, you know, he's getting ready for Jesus' ministry. We're going to go. We're going to set the captives free. We're going to eventually uh, end up at the cross, pay for the sins of the world. But first, let's have a little detour in the desert. And let's have the devil come alongside and we can have sort of a mano y mano, you know, matchup. Why? Well, I decided I would think a little bit about that. Um, a couple of possible answers uh, for you. And I think um, probably the most popular in the Christian tradition is to let us know that God, too, has endured temptation. And this has been a very contentious issue because if God is God, then he, he cannot sin by definition. Um, so how could someone who cannot sin actually feel temptation the way that we feel? Um, so that's a very complicated theological uh, puzzle to which I do not have the answer. But I just take Luke's word for it, basically. I mean, he says that he was tempted. I'll trust him. Maybe another possibility is that um, we get a sense of what Jesus' mission is by reading this text. We understand that uh, by reading this text and seeing the way that Luke alludes to um, the wilderness wanderings, we can see that that Jesus is being Israel for Israel. And that gives us a sense for what his mission is and how he's saving the world. Those are uh, some wonderful um, possibilities, but I think there's one that just just was tugging at me, and I I can't help it. Look at the very end of, um, of the passage. Now when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Well, you have to wonder, what's the devil thinking, right? He's basically, he's, he's thrown all of his best pitches, right? To use the baseball analogy, the devil's on the mound, and he's thrown, he's thrown the junk, he's thrown the curveball, he's thrown the fastball, what is it, high and outside, low and outside? What's the hard one to hit? Either one, okay, it's something. Baseball, a great sport. Um, he, he's done the best that he can, right? And Jesus is just, he's just locked in. I mean, he's just stroking them. They're one after the other, going out of the park, taking the bad pitches and just, and just nailing it. And so you've got to wonder what the devil's thinking he's going to do, right? It's like, gosh, I can't get him the way that I've always gotten Israel before. 
what is the only solution to my problem with this guy? If you have your pew Bibles, just open to um, Luke 22. Luke 22. We're going to look at uh, verses 2 to 3. Um, we read, And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. Right then, Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. This is the only other time that Satan shows up in the Gospel of Luke. I want to suggest to you that um, Satan knows he's beat. He knows he can't stop this man. And when you can't stop him the normal way, you have to kill them. And he's looking for a good opportunity to do it. And then one shows up. Okay, now, go with me here. Why does the Spirit lead Jesus to face the devil? Because the Spirit is sucker-punching the devil. The question is, who is gaming who in this story? The Spirit is leading Jesus to face the devil. Why? To beat the devil now, so that the devil will do the one thing that the Spirit knows Jesus needs to have done. And that is have Jesus executed. Jesus, or the Spirit, suckers the devil into looking for a way to kill Jesus so that the plan of God can come to fruition. This is amazing. I, wow. I'd love to say that I came up with it. Not me. It was Gregory of Nyssa. He's, a, he's an old theologian. Um, also, some other guys did this in the early church. Athanasius, Athanasius Irenaeus, Origen. Uh, they call it ransom theory. I, I even, I typed this out. This is so cool, um, what, uh, what Gregory says. I'm sorry. You know what? I know. I'm going to end this in like two minutes. Just, just go with it. I think it's really neat. This is what Gregory says. He says, In order to secure that the ransom on our behalf might be easily accepted by him who required it, him who required the devil. The devil needs ransom. God was hidden under the veil of our nature. So God hides himself as Jesus. So, uh, that so, as with hungry fish, the hook of God might be gulped down along with the bait of flesh, and thus life being introduced in the house of death and light shining in darkness, that which is diametrically opposed to light and life might vanish. For it is not in the nature of darkness to remain when light is present, or of death to exist when life is active. Some people call this the divine uh, fish hook theory. Uh, and you can write there in your notes, Gregory of Nyssa likens the cross of Christ to a baited fish hook. The idea is that in order to get uh, the devil to make the critical mistake and murder the one who cannot be swallowed up by death, Jesus has to beat him. Has to beat him soundly. And he does. And the devil bites. He says, I've got to kill this guy. And God says, yeah, you do. And as soon as you do, death will be swallowed up by life because darkness can't survive when life is there. And you think of death as darkness and, and Jesus goes down into the grave of darkness and his light explodes out and destroys death for all time. Aaron, are you happy? Aaron's not even here. She left a long time ago. Uh, she fell asleep. Um, 
She, she doesn't like my sermon. That's okay. I'm not, I'm not mad about it, you know. Oh, oh, there she is. That was the answer. I gave you an answer. You feel better? Okay, good. <laughs> so now that I've wasted your time with that, uh, you might be wondering what's going on. Um, God bless Saddleback Church. Um, Saddleback Church has the, uh, this book that Rick Warren wrote, very, very popular book, The, the Purpose Driven Life. Yes? And the interesting thing about this book is that Rick Warren gets to a very fundamental need that human beings have. Rick Warren understands that human beings need to have a mission. We need to have a purpose in life. Um, and and he, he sort of gets us to think about our Christian life in terms of having a mission. What's, what's confusing, though, is if you have this mission, say you're like Mike and Carrie. Mike and Carrie, you've got your mission. Haiti is your mission. Right? How do you deal with it when your mission, your purpose, comes under attack? What happens when people get in the way, when things don't look good? Possibly, possibly when the enemy is trying to corrupt you and move you away. Get some roadblocks in your way so that the enemy can get you to do the wrong thing, to get off the path a little bit, to, to you know, put corruption into the middle of your mission, to destroy it. What do you do? We need victory, we need success in the face of these problems, but our victory, our success, must come the way Jesus did. It comes from God, not from me, not from others. It comes from God. God is the one who provides the success, the victory, the path through. Our, our, it, the, 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 the success, the victory, has to be on God's terms. We don't take the ring of power for ourselves and beat the enemy down. No, we do it God's way. And if that means crucifixion, as it did in Jesus' case, that's the way we go. We do it on God's terms as we fulfill our mission. And lastly, we do it on God's time. One of the hardest things in Haiti, uh, especially for Mike, Mike's a do-it kind of guy. One of the hardest things is how long everything takes there. I mean, if you've been down there, it is just exhausting. I'm like, I'm like, can we, can we do this? Like Aaron knows, uh, Aaron knows, I can't stand to be late. I hate being late to things. In Haiti, there's nothing on time. Being on time means being three hours late. It's exhausting. It's, but it is a way to be taught when we're there. You're, it's not on your time. It's not your time schedule that's going to get this, this obstacle, this, this thing in your path out of the way. It's God's time schedule. You're on God's time. You're doing it God's way. You're waiting for God to show up. That is your path of victory. That was Jesus' path of victory in the face of the temptation of the devil. That's our path of victory as we seek to fulfill the purposes and the missions of our lives. So if you don't have a mission or a purpose, get one. Oh, things are going great in your mission, your purpose? Oh, you, Mike, you built, you built the orphanage. Just wait. As soon as you start being successful, things are going to get in your way, and Mike and Carrie can testify to that. Things are going to show up to, to derail you, to set you off the path. No, when you go through, it's from God, on God's terms, in God's time. But yeah, if you're, if you're beat down in your mission, if your mission is uh, it's being stalled, and you're not sure um, if it's going to go forward, I, I, this is, I think that maybe there's a chance that this is an example of the Spirit of God 
putting the devil in another divine trap, trying to sucker punch the devil to go after you, to go after your ministry. And when you beat the devil on God's terms, what might happen? How might your ministry blossom? How might your, uh, your work impact souls for the kingdom of God? When the devil comes with everything he's got and you say, no, my victory is from God, on God's terms, in God's time. How, how upset does the enemy get and how many stupid mistakes will he make? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the example of Jesus. We thank you for his ability to overcome. We thank you that he teaches us to have victory from you on your terms in your time. We thank you that he successfully was Israel for Israel so that none of us have to fulfill the law. None of us have to fulfill the call of the prophets. It's all been done. And we just participate in his victory. But God, we know that our missions, the ones that you've set for us in this world, our tasks, our purposes, they will be beset by the enemy. I pray that we, like Christ, We'll have the patience, the fortitude, the humility, and the endurance to seek our victory from you on your terms, in your time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Tom, I kid you not, I didn't pick this based off of your message, but these words are perfect. When darkness seems to hide his face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. Just when you think things are going to be tough, if you put your, your hope and your trust in Christ and your hope is built on nothing less, God will continue to be your cornerstone. Let's stand and close with this song. Let me hear you sing it. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Then I trust the sweetest frame My holy trust in Jesus' name Christ Peace.
shall go with trumpet sound. Let me hear your voices. Okay, uh, there are budgets in the foyer. Um, I am grossly overpaid, and you can find out by how much by checking out the budgets in there as, as you get ready for our, um, our annual meeting next uh, week. Also, I have a note here to pray for the 49ers. <laughs> Unfortunately, Neil, I've just had a word from the Lord, and apparently the Seattle Seahawks are going to take it, so... <laughs> I'm sorry, I mean, it's, I just prophesied. What can I say? <laughs> Um, friends, so good to see you. Um, may you go, and may you know that your, uh, your mission, your purposes will be fulfilled uh, when you seek your success and your victory from God on his terms, in his time. Go in peace. <laughs>